Support for Decoder comes from NetSuite. Here are some numbers all business owners should know for 2024. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com decoder. That's netsuite.com decoder to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com decoder. Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. So every now and again, I get asked to describe what The Verge is or to do a mission statement or something like that. And there's a million corporate riffs on this thing. You can say that we're a tech site or we cover the future, whatever. But what I always come back to is that The Verge is at its core about how technology makes us feel. Our screens and our systems aren't inert or neutral. They create emotions. Sometimes the strongest emotions that anyone actually feels in their day-to-day lives. I've been thinking about that a lot ever since I read a new book called Everything I Need, I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet. It's by Caitlin Tiffany, who was a culture reporter at The Verge several years ago. She's now a staff writer at The Atlantic. The thesis of her book is that online fandom, specifically hardcore fans of the British boy band One Direction, created much of the online culture we live in today on social platforms. In fact, her bigger thesis is that fandom overall is a cultural and political force that can't be ignored. It shapes elections, it drives cultural conversations, it can bring joy to people who feel lonely, and it can result in dramatically negative consequences when fans turn on someone. Basically, fandom is the social internet. And our popular culture and the biggest social platforms are shaped by fandoms in ways that we only sometimes understand. Now, if you're a Decoder listener or a Verge reader, you know all of that is just total bait for me. I love thinking about how the actual people who use products almost always use them in ways that the designers or leaders of those products never anticipated. And here, the story is that One Direction fans, who are mostly young women, used social media platforms like Tumblr and Twitter so ferociously that they created an entirely new kind of modern language and an entirely new kind of community with its own factions, its own controversies, its own misinformation problems. At some point, One Direction itself stopped being the important thing. The band has been broken up. I'm sorry, it's on hiatus for years now. Now, Caitlin is herself a diehard One Direction fan. So her perspective on why online fandoms do what they do and what they can be rallied to accomplish was fascinating. And it just made me keep coming back to that main idea that all of this technology is here to make us feel things. And there's something about online fandoms that explains so much about how technology makes us feel. One note, you do not need to be a huge One Direction fan to get something out of this episode. I myself needed to get a crash course to the band from my teenage niece and nephew before talking to Caitlin. 
We explain what you need to know about the band in the episode itself, and we'll have a link to a playlist in the show notes if you want to dive deep into the back catalog. But this episode's really about fandom, not One Direction. You'll see what I mean. Okay, Caitlin Tiffany, here we go. Caitlin Tiffany, you're a staff writer at The Atlantic. I'm required to say you're a former culture reporter at The Verge. You're also the author of the book, Everything I Need, I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet as We Know It, which is out today as this podcast comes out. Welcome to Decoder. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. It's very true that Caitlin used to work at The Verge, and uh, truly some of <laughs> some of the wildest things we ever published are Caitlin Tiffany Productions, so this is really fun. The book is about the social dynamics of platforms is viewed through the lens of the band One Direction, your personal fandom of the band One Direction, and then the powerful force uh, that is the One Direction fandom. I have a sneaking suspicion that many Decoder listeners might not be deep on One Direction. Can you give us just a brief history of this band and wow. its fandom? Like, it's well, I know it's hard. Like, you just wrote a whole book about <laughs> it. So, like, we'll get there. But just give us the, the elevator version. Well, if Decoder listeners are longtime readers of The Verge, they should have some knowledge of One Direction. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I guess the simple version is a it's a British-Irish boy band that was formed in 2011 and sort of became this global phenomenon at the same time that young people were joining social media platforms. So it was kind of this, like, really, I, I don't know, uh, incendiary moment online where all of a sudden uh, you couldn't avoid knowing about Harry Styles. And I guess simultaneously, the other phenomenon happening at the same time was Justin Bieber, which I chose to largely ignore for this book because I, I find him annoying. Well, because you're a One Direction fan. <laughs> yeah, the, because I'm a One Direction fan. Yeah, the, the tension between the Bieber fans and the One Direction fans is is it's in the book and it's all through the book if you're like paying attention to it. It's very good. Um, you mentioned it was a boy band i feel like i have to ask this question because it's decoder how is one direction structured like how does it work how are they assembled they were individual like 15 16 17 year old boys trying out for the x factor which is like british american idol and you know kind of like dumpy looking like they were all <laughs> wearing just like like mall rat clothes and had terrible haircuts and we're mostly not even very good at singing at the time, but you know, the infamous Simon Cowell was like, okay, none of these boys have what it takes by themselves. I'm going to smush them together into this like Frankenstein, like mega pop star. So that's their origin story. I guess it's a little bit like uninspiring. It's sort of like as, cold and commercial as an origin story can be. But then after that point, I think they kind of like land on this presentation that's pretty novel for boy bands where they don't know how to dance. They don't do choreography. They don't wear matching outfits. You know, there's all these behind the scenes videos of them like being pretty chaotic, like refusing to rehearse and kicking soccer balls at people. They all get tattoos. It, it's supposed to be like pretty rambunctious and like anarchic and then musically they start out doing like pretty typical pop 
songs, but later they become this kind of like dad rock cover band in a way that I found really fun. Some people found (laughs) annoying, but I feel like it was a good move. It was really weird that they were just suddenly like the most popular, like classic rock band (laughs) in the world. (laughs) They're not actually covered. I think we we should make it clear. It sounds very much like classic rock. They're not actually like doing Led Zeppelin covers. Although by the time they have their like Vegas residencies, maybe they'll work some in. Um, Yeah. That's how that goes. I just wanted to bring that up. You brought up the the sort of like cold commercial origin of this. And one of the tensions throughout the book is between the just pure commercialization of music in the form of Simon Cowell on a reality show, assembling a band to sell it to teenage girls. And then the extremely powerful kind of like DIY ethos of the fandom, which is in opposition to the thing that they love like very often. And so mm-hmm. your book is not really about One Direction. I think it's important to understand what One Direction is. There are infinity One Direction playlists for people to go listen to on Spotify <laughs> if you need a quick, if you need to hit, take a break and, and take a crash course. But the band itself is kind of not the locus of power that you're discussing. It's the fandom. And the fandom seems to have accomplished like quite a lot in its time on Earth. What are some things that it has accomplished? Well, there's like the real accomplishments of the fandom and then the sort of like mythological, like, like lore <laughs> accomplishments of the fandom. So One Direction fans would claim that in the height of One Direction, fans were able to band together to like hack airport security cameras <laughs> in order to like watch them. They took credit for, for stunts like that, that, you know, I don't know if that really happened, but they also... I think, take credit for One Direction's success in a pretty legitimate way because, um, you know, famously, One Direction lost the X Factor. They came in third place. And then they had this, like, grassroots fandom that just, like, really dedicated itself to, you know, I guess what you could call media manipulation. Um, (laughs) Just, like, tweeting constantly in these, like, highly interconnected groups and just figuring out how to use these platforms to make something they cared about super visible, which is a reason that they, I think, also had a pretty strong resentment towards the entertainment industry or towards powerful people that were nominally in charge of One Direction because they felt that they understood the band better, understood like how to present them better, cared about them more, cared about them in more of like a pure way money is like part of fandom and i don't think any one direction fans would be like they're not like naive about that but in part of what they want is like chart success and sales and like see these boys become like rich and famous forever but that's just like a like a means to an end for them and the end is like everybody in the world knowing and loving (laughs) one direction songs so that's really, I would just put that in context of, I don't know, like the the classic music trope, which is, I love this band when they were small, and then they got huge, and now they sold out, and I don't love them anymore. And this is from the complete opposite perspective, right? They started out designed to be big. They, mm-hmm. they didn't win. They didn't get big in the way that they were like on the track to do. And then the fandom said, we're going to make you big anyway, and the goal is even more success. And I, those things are in conflict in a really interesting way. And it seems like maybe the idea of selling out is completely over. And the goal for all things all the time now is like mass success. 
Yeah, I guess so. I, don't, I feel like selling out wouldn't really like enter into this, into the conversation around One Direction amongst their fans. Are any One Direction fans like, I liked their first album? Like, There's obviously like some clout to be gained from like remembering mm-hmm. in jokes from the very beginning or like having been around on Tumblr, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but as far as like their musically, I mean, I don't think any One Direction fans think their first album is the best one. That would be like, I mean, that would be objectively wrong. I, like, I just, <laughs> I, just I, I don't think anybody thinks that. Um, the other thing that's really interesting in the book is you actually say at one point, this book is not about one direction who are not that interesting and I would never want to meet them. And then obviously the book goes on to talk about the fandom, which is interesting. And broadly your point is that fandom is a cultural and now political force is unexamined. So that's why you're examining it. But I just want to like focus on that. Like it seems like the fandom is so apart from the band that the idea of actually interacting with the band is not that important. It probably depends, I guess, on the person. I I spoke to a woman for the book, Alison Gross, who's like an amazing writer and academic who was writing her dissertation on Harry Styles. And then he like walked past the cafe that she was sitting in, like working on her dissertation about him. And she like incorporated that into her writing and like went out and met him and told him about what she was working on. And it seemed like that was a really fun experience for her. And just like so bizarre, like... Gods really do roam the earth. But <laughs> but I had a similar opportunity pre-pandemic, like in the office in Midtown. Um, somebody in Slack was like, Harry Styles is in the random coffee shop in the like Eddie Bauer store downstairs. Like, <laughs> you got to get down there. And I was like, no, I think he's probably left by now. No. And, I <laughs> and then they were like, no, no, I'm looking at him. He's still here. He's still there. And I was like, well... Yeah, I'm transcribing something. I can't, you know, this is a workplace. I just feel like to meet, like meeting, like if I met Harry Styles, like, I don't know, I wouldn't be able to succinctly like explain to him like his significance in my life. So I would be unpleasant for me. I think it would just be like a really stressful, but I, but I think like people definitely feel differently. There's people who are like, will put in their Twitter bios, like how many times they've met each one of the members of One Direction and stuff. And that's like exciting for them. So I think it just depends on your personality. (laughs) Well, just the thing I'm trying to like suss out is there's the band, which is now broken up. And then there's the fandom and the fandom has like retained its power and cultural significance, even as the members of the band have gone on to very different independent careers. Yeah. Somewhat. Well, so first first of all, One Direction is technically still on hiatus. Oh my God, Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> um, it hasn't broken up. I mean, so the fandom has retained its power in some ways. It is really splintered, though. There's a lot of different factions. And like the Harry Styles fandom is probably currently the most visible because he has the most like star power. But there are different factions on Tumblr, like people who are only fans of One Direction that call themselves like OG5 or like people who are only fans of One Direction, like post Zane. So that's like OG4 fans. And then, you know, there's like Zane fans are pretty hostile towards, you know, the remainder of the One Direction fandom because Zane was really unhappy towards the end of the time of being in One Direction. Um, and, you know, they sort of blame other fans for that or, like fans of like Louis Tomlinson 
or Liam Payne would probably be pretty resentful of Harry Styles fans because like Louis and Liam aren't successful. That's like the most basic summary of it. There's so many different warring <laughs> factions, even within fandom. And I think that there's a pretty di- like stark difference too now between people who stayed on Tumblr, even as it's been like crumbling and <laughs> eroding and people who have just like committed full time to being on Twitter, which is kind of the like louder, faster, more aggressive expression uh, of fandom. Yeah, let's talk about those platforms for a second. So the thesis of the book and what you just said is this band came to prominence as the social platforms were taking off. You have a, a long sort of history of girls on the internet and the idea that there were no girls on the internet, which was somewhat untrue. But as the social platforms took off, women and particularly girls started using the internet more and more and more. They started using it to communicate about this band. And then the platforms themselves, the dynamics of the platforms are fundamentally shaped by fandom of which... One Direction, and it must be said, Justin Bieber was the first. Um, <laughs> how has that played out? Like when you say the platforms are shaped by the dynamics of fandoms, give me some examples. I think a lot of the emotional tenor of Twitter that we kind of take for granted now is probably thanks to Stan Twitter, just like the way that people talk, you like heightened emotional balance of talking about anything as if it's everything is either like the best thing in the world or the worst thing in the world. And I think even serious people like who don't know that realize that they're doing that talk like that all the time on Twitter and our engagement with cultural objects and like even like political figures and news events has a really like fan inflected tone which you know kind of notably around the 2016 election and afterwards kind of became alarming to people like like Trump's fandom is quite upsetting, (laughs) but also just like the kind of liberal tendency to take figures like Elizabeth Warren or Ruth Bader Ginsburg and like hold them up as heroes in a fictional story and talk about them the same way that you would talk about your favorite character on Glee. I think that's something that came out of fandom and that people have started to like reconsider recently. And then I think just like the understanding of how to drive conversation is something that people witnessed either by witnessing fandom or by witnessing sort of the dark inversion of fandom, which was Gamergate and seeing just like how groups who have like basically nothing in common, but one shared interest that they really care about can, you know, set up these really coordinated campaigns and use them to elevate a message and like make it impossible to escape like another dark example of that recently would be like the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. Um, people who were like standing Johnny Depp for whatever reason, like really made that impossible to miss. I felt like the whole conversation last month was like people who weren't following the trial on purpose being like, why am I seeing so much of this? But like those strategies, I guess, for dominating conversation are things that people learn from early fandom and have like gotten better and better at. You mentioned Tumblr and Twitter. The book is very much about Tumblr and Twitter. Why is it those two platforms that are the locus of fan activity and not like Instagram? Huh. I guess, yeah, that's and the Instagram thing is weird to me. Like, I don't really know exactly why there isn't more. I guess probably because Instagram being like a Facebook product is more focused on your actual social circle than it is on like meeting people through shared interests. But um, I mean, there was 
some fan activity on Instagram. And there's obviously a ton of fan activity on like fanfic platforms, like Archive of Our Own or Wattpad, which are like things I didn't talk about quite as much in the book, just because I'm not a really avid reader of fanfic. But as far as like why Tumblr and Twitter, I feel like they made a lot of sense as a pairing because Tumblr was sort of the insular space where if you were a fan, you could go and really immerse yourself and acquire this like visual language and um, start to understand all of these different like in-jokes and memes and this like expanding lore without a lot of outside scrutiny because Tumblr is really confusing. The search function doesn't work. It's hard to just kind of (laughs) drop in. There's also like uniquely at the time, there wasn't a lot of incentive to attach your Tumblr blog to your real identity. You could also like completely just like start over at any time. It wasn't weird to do that. You could just be like, I want a new URL. I want a new blog overnight. Like I've decided I'm a One Direction blog. Now I'm going to try to make it into this community. And also there was no like public follower counts or anything like that. So I think some of those communities could grow a little bit more organically where it wasn't super clear where the, I don't know, power or influence was located all the time. And then Twitter, it was like the more public facing platform for fandom where, you know, fans who would maybe organize on Tumblr would then go to Twitter to sort of like present whatever (laughs) they had decided they were going to present of the fandom for, for public consumption. And that was for like promoting music or like, winning stan arguments against fever fans or whatever and just like making their presence known on the internet in a way that they didn't always necessarily want on tumblr it seems like tumblr is i don't know very insular it's inside and then twitter is where you go to find all the other people and make them care about one direction yeah yeah twitter is where like you're openly spamming people on twitter like (laughs) tumblr is a curation platform twitter is a spam platform um, there's a bunch of stuff that f- fans do of and now, I think for every major artist where they basically game the system, they set up Spotify playlists to play other tracks. They endlessly Shazam the songs to boost whatever billboard ranking system that exists. They're VPNing from other countries in the United States to boost rankings. That is all like it. On the one hand, it's fairly sophisticated. On the other hand, I can absolutely imagine myself as a teenager being like, I can figure out how this works. And then (laughs) doing it like it's sophisticated, but it's also I feel like any teen, any motivated teen with time would get there if they needed to. But that just seems like a lot of work. Why do people do all this work for free? Okay, to back up a little bit, that um, description of how to like use the VPNs to boost like American streaming numbers was something that was flagged by the legal review of the book and she was like (laughs) she was like you need to not be writing this like an instruction manual like telling people how to (laughs) arguably break the law and I was like okay I don't think this is legal but I know I was like I don't I don't know about that but but okay just like (laughs) this isn't like telling people how to build a bomb but um but (laughs) but um that stuff was something I reported on when I was at The Verge because I just like came across on Tumblr a fan who had a gifting blog, which was a super interesting concept to me. Basically, like to boost the downloads of One Direction songs, like fans would gift each other the song in iTunes, but you can only gift songs to people who live in your country. So there would be like 
someone in Lebanon saying like, I want to gift the song to someone, but all my friends already bought it. I like, I don't know what to do. So there would be this, like this person who ran a, a Tumblr that would have this massive spreadsheet being like, all right, we got like 30 people in Brazil. We got like 14 people in Portugal. Like we're going to match them up in pairs so they can just like gift each other the song and (laughs) get One Direction like one more, or I guess 30, 40 more (laughs) downloads. And like when you talk to people about it, they obviously, I think like rationally know that that is not going to make the difference between like a One Direction song being number four on the charts versus number one. But I think there's like a like superstition that comes into it, like how people wear their special, I don't even know what sports fans do, special <laughs> outfit. <laughs> special outfit. That's <laughs> when I go to see a football socks. game, I'm like, I got to put on my special outfit. <laughs> uh, but people have like superstitions around fandom. And I think also it's like, part of like the ceremony of fandom. Like if you really love Harry Styles and you really want his debut single to be number one, like even if you know that like realistically leaving the song playing on your Spotify window is like not enough streams to do anything, (laughs) even if you left it on all day and all night, like you would still do it because it's just like what you do as part of like going about your day as somebody who like loves Harry Styles and it's like fun obviously it's like fun to be on Tumblr and be like ha 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 we cooked up this plot like that's a good time (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to come back to that for one second but I want to just lay some foundation for that conversation you spend a lot of time in the beginning of the book talking about the screaming teenage girl like the image of the screaming teenage girl as a force in culture there's a very long history there starting before the Beatles, then obviously to the Beatles and now to boy bands. Explain the sort of stereotype and why you think the stereotype is like net negative. The stereotype is pretty thin. It's just like teen girls see this like artificially crafted object of their uh, affection and start like screaming and become hysterical and like lose all control of their bodies and like sometimes even become dangerous to themselves and others, which was when I was like reading newspaper coverage of Beatlemania, I was really surprised by how like violent a lot of it was. And also some of it, I was like, "Mm, would this pass a modern fact check? But like, (laughs) (laughs) there's like claims that, you know, Beatles fans were getting so excited behind the police barricades at airports and at hotels and stuff that they would like break their bones and they break their own bones or like <laughs> shattered plate glass doors. Like there was one article I read that was talking about how after the Beatles stayed in some hotel and swum in, in the pool that the fans went and like bottled, like a fan went and bottled up all of the water from the swimming pool and sold it uh, in <laughs> little, like holy water or something. And like, sometimes that's kind of funny. Like it's kind of a funny image, but what was annoying about it, I guess, is that like when you read that coverage like none of those journalists asked any of those girls anything at all about what they were doing there or if they did it would be like one question kind of set up to make them sound stupid it just seems so obvious that there's like everyone is more interesting than they appear if you're just watching them do something weird like (laughs) at one moment in time and everybody has like gotten excited about something and like behaved in kind of a goofy fashion. And I think it's strange to not be curious about what's going on 
after they get home from the concert or like in the lead up to coming to the concert, like why is it so important to them to be there? And Beatlemania was also the super strange time in American history. And that was when Betty for Dan wrote the feminine mystique about um, sort of the like misery of the American housewife for the dead expressions. I think she describes it as of like teenage girls growing up with the understanding that they would live <laughs> the same way that their mothers lived. Also Kennedy had just been shot, which I think is weird that they didn't like nobody acknowledges. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I, I guess like with One Direction fans in particular, I think I was just like seeing these images like side by side of like Beatles fans or Sinatra fans or later like Backstreet Boys and Seek fans and Bieber fans and then <laughs> and <laughs> One Direction fans. I just found it insulting <laughs> because I was like, you know, that's me and that's my little sisters. And I think we're so funny and smart and charming. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, especially whatever, especially my little sister who was the biggest One Direction fan in our family at the time. She was like so funny and self-aware and like made really great jokes about One Direction. And I was just like, uh, it makes me so irritated to think of that somebody would like see her excitement and be like, oh, look at that little idiot or whatever, <laughs> you know, because I don't think that she is that at all. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Support for Decoder comes from Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Whether you're seeking a location for your podcast teaching language courses, or selling handcrafted ceramics, Squarespace has all the tools you need to create a home on the web. You can create a polished, professional place that connects people with whatever it is you're excited about. Squarespace also supports all forms of connecting with those people, whether you're selling products online or in person, or offering memberships. You can make your website look exactly how you want it. They even have the tools to help you create a custom logo. And they make it easy to create a place for people to schedule an appointment with you browse your services, or learn more about why you do what you do. Visit squarespace.com decoder for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code decoder to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be a challenge for men to speak up about their health, and oftentimes that's rooted in the fear of being vulnerable. But there are just some things we'd rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel which is why they are looking to provide you with the help you need discreetly. Introducing Hims, a men's healthcare product looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash verge for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. 
We're back with Caitlin Tiffany. Caitlin was just telling us about Beatlemania, but we're going to bring it back up to modern times. So I came up in the Backstreet Boys era, in the NSYNC era, and I was definitely the boy who was like, that's stupid. Now, later, I'm like, those are some jams. Um, (laughs) But at no point throughout that transition was I like, the fans of this band are a cultural powerhouse that I will have to reckon with in my career and life. Now it's like very obvious that fans of anything are a cultural powerhouse, uh, whether it's like Game of Thrones or One Direction or Donald Trump. Like it's fandom is like the dominant mode of all things in culture. Beatlemania still wasn't that. And one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading the book is the reason for the screaming is that you've like you can be anonymously as passionate as you want to be in a way that would make no sense in any other context. But you're like part of this group and you're doing it. I would say sports fans are exactly the same way. Like mm. if you go to a state school football game, everyone's wearing blue and singing Mr. Brightside together. And like you would just not do that in any other context. Like wait, what what school did they sing Mr. Brightside for? Michigan. Michigan fun. football games. They like they Whoa. they play it and then everyone sings and then they stop the music and the whole stadium continues singing Mr. Brightside. Wow, that's so fun. And what a like, great sing-along song. <laughs> it's pretty fun. But it's also like, <laughs> like you know, D1 college football. It's just like a very jarring juxtaposition of ideas. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you can connect that directly to fandoms and like screaming teenage girls or whatever that image is. But your your book is about like, oh, but the social platforms existed at the same time. So you can come home and be that passionate with other people alone in your room. And that seems like the mechanism of the power of fandom, that you're kind of like alone, but you're very much all together at the same level of intensity. A lot of the stuff that I think is most interesting about One Direction fandom is the like really like freaky art projects people would be doing with whatever like footage they got from a concert. So they would come home and and kind of like go through and be like, I have this like randomly, I got this still photo of, Nile in which he like is doing something really freaky looking with his body where he looks like a demon and you know like make a, a meme out of that or like I also read about for the verge like this category of really short fan fiction that was these like really convoluted and like morbid scenarios like what kind of outfit would you wear for Nile Horn to hit you with his car and stuff like that. And that stuff is obviously just as baffling as like <laughs> screaming and breaking your own legs at a, <laughs> at a police barricade. But I also think it just like reveals to me how like interesting and specific individual people can be in trying to process like why they really care about something. They can go home and have these conversations with people they don't know where there's basically like no limit to how out there they can get. And that's kind of like the fun of it. It's like, we talk about these boys so much. There's like absolutely nothing left for us to say about them. (laughs) 
<laughs> Except for to imagine, like, what if I was playing Chubby Bunny with Harry Styles or whatever, and I, like, choked to death on a marshmallow? Like, that's the that's the last scenario I have yet to explore. Does anyone want to explore that with me? Um, <laughs> like, some of that stuff is scary, and, like, yeah, I don't know. Teens have scary emotions. That's just life. But, like... <laughs> I don't know. I also thought it was it was just like a really fun, exciting time to be on the internet and to be paid to look at Tumblr all day. So thank you for that. It was good. It was. Um, <laughs> I definitely did not know that that was happening at the time that you were to the Verge, but I appreciated it. The stories are wild. The Caitlin Tiffany archive on the Verge is a is a real ride if anyone wants to go look at it. One of the things you're kind of talking about here is. Right, you've talked about these boys so much that I keep coming back to the idea this band is broken up. Um, it's like there really isn't much left to talk about because they've all gone in different directions. But the culture that's being created out of the band has nothing to do with the band. It's all like fan fiction and collaborative artwork. It has a very different sort of value in the broader culture. Like no one's streaming Tumblr artwork for pennies per stream. Like. There's mm-hmm. no money to be made here, it doesn't seem like. Yeah. It, this stuff is being created at a higher rate than the band itself, which would actually make money, is creating anything. Yeah, I guess that was sort of one of the tensions of writing about this, too, is that, like, yeah, this is, like, not productive labor in any, like, traditional sense. But at the same time, I think, like, young people are increasingly aware that anything they're doing on social, social media is productive for someone and it's not them and it's also not the things they care about so um i mean maybe not so much on tumblr i don't know how well they really did monetizing the one direction (laughs) fan base they did not do a good job (laughs) i think that much is clear but like they're obviously sort of like being resistant in certain ways by like refusing to make their time profitable like you know that's like a common critique of fans is that they're wasting their time and like you know that celebrity doesn't even care about you, blah, blah, blah. Or, like, older fans that I talk to would be, like, you're wasting your money, you should be, like, more financially responsible instead of going to concerts all the time or, like, buying these sweatshirts that you don't need or whatever, which, I mean, who knows? But, yeah, they're simultaneously, like, refusing to participate in the way that other people think they should in, like, capitalist society, but obviously at the same time are aware that some many and different entities are making money off of them. So it's not exactly like as punk rock <laughs> as like <laughs> maybe they would wish. Uh, I mean, I think early, I mean, the Sex Pistols are effectively a boy band, but that's a different conversation <laughs> for a very different time. One of the things that jumps out when you talk about that kind of labor and we talk about what it means to scream at a concert and then go home and have all the same people there on your computer, but you're alone is like, I don't know if this occurred to you, but as I was reading the book, everyone in it seems pretty desperately lonely in real life and then like totally alive online. You actually, there's, you have an entire section where you talk about chasing the feeling, like you personally talk about chasing the feeling of loneliness for a period in your life. Mm -hmm. If you can be at a 10 emotionally online all the time, it just sort of stands to reason that real life will be disappointing the actions of your day-to-day life will be will be somewhat disappointing in contrast to I can just like open this Tumblr window and the most passionate people I know are being as passionate as they can be at all times. Yeah. That dynamic seems really real in the book. Did you sense that loneliness in, in people? 
Yeah, I feel like a lot of people I talked to did bring that up. And, like, online community obviously is sort of, like, a value-neutral proposition and can either be really helpful for people in dealing with loneliness or can kind of, like, prey on people. And I think that's true even within the One Direction fandom. Like, for me, it was really fun to have that because it also like helped me connect with people in my real life. Like I became a One Direction fan when I was in college and I had a friend from high school who got really into them. And then my little sisters were really into them. So it was a like way for, for me to like go on the internet when I felt lonely and like participate in this thing that like people I loved also were participating in. And I think a lot of people have also, especially on Tumblr, like it's really like an affirming space in a lot of ways for like young queer people or people of color who like wouldn't have seen themselves reflected in that fandom otherwise. But I also spoke to people who got really taken in by sort of the like conspiracy theory and of the fandom, which had these kind of like mysterious Tumblr influencer figures who were pretty good at like manipulating young people into like believing these really dark things that were just like not productive to dwell on. And so like, yeah, I feel like it can go either way. Like if your loneliness is driving you to the internet, like it's almost just like a roulette wheel (laughs) of like whether you're going to like wind up someplace that will like help you deal with that loneliness or you're going to wind up someplace that's going to like manipulate you through that. So, but even inside the One Direction fandom, right? You're, when you say the, the conspiracy theory is that Harry Styles and Louis Tomlinson are secretly in love. That is called Larry. Mm-hmm. I read about this in your book and then I went and read about it for real online and I was like horrified by this whole situation. That group of people has like wreaked havoc in both of their lives, is wreaked havoc for their children in strange ways and their partners, their wives. Like that connection between I love this thing so much that I want this to be true. And I will actively resist the reality of it being untrue. Like that's a pattern we see everywhere. Like that's QAnon, right? Like, but there's like tangible evidence that the people you love dislike it. Like it seems as though Harry Styles and Louis Tomlinson dislike that this is happening and they still can't get it to stop. Like why can't a smaller community that has a shared passion for something self-moderate that out? I feel like there was sort of a substantial like schism in fandom where like you know a lot of people will say like larry's like dni do not interact in their tumblr bios and stuff too and they refuse to read like any fan fiction that was written by someone who believes in larry whether or not the fiction has anything to do with larry so there's like a pretty clear like line in the sand through the fandom but i think like i mean you mentioned QAnon, like that conspiracy theory is maintained by influential figures within the community who will anytime that there is like evidence that refutes the overarching like narrative will like you know calm everyone and like figure out how it actually proves what we thought all along and like there are those figures within the One Direction fandom like just at this point just like a handful of women on Tumblr who are always there to like offer a new piece of evidence that gets people excited again. Or like when Louis Tomlinson tweeted, like denying that theory um, and calling it the bullshit, they would, you know, kind of spin like, well, management is in charge of Louis. 
tweets now. So we need to start looking for things that are more subtle. We need to start looking for like coded timestamps or like uses of like symbolism and different like color schemes that mean different things. And like, I don't think there was anything wrong with the original theory that Louis and Harry were in love because that's fine. Who cares? It was more like later that it started to have a really corrosive effect on the fandom because it became about, you know, saying that Louis Tomlinson's child was not actually his child and like scrutinizing his girlfriend's like body and like mapping out her like menstrual cycles and stuff in a way that was like very disturbing. And it's just like, that is like an actual waste of someone's like energy. Also made, I feel like a lot of those people became like really distrustful in the way that other conspiracy thinkers are distrustful of like the motives of like anybody related to the media or the entertainment industry or like anyone who disagrees with them is like some kind of shady figure. They're actually one of them that I tried to talk to for the book, like became convinced that Caitlin Tiffany is not my real name. um, (laughs) It's actually uh, Tiffany Caitlin. Yeah. She was just like emailing all kinds of people at like (laughs) my publisher to be like, I demand to know what this woman's actual name is. It's like, I've been getting that all my life. (laughs) We have to take one more quick break. So we'll be right back. Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow. Businesses of all sizes count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And because there's no telling what the day will bring, you need a built-for-business PC solution that gives you security, performance, manageability, and stability no matter what stage you're in. Intel vPro is here to help. Intel vPro provides business class performance and reliability on powerful PCs that boost user productivity and satisfaction. And it offers multi-layer hardware-based security for below-the-OS protection, better application and data security, and advanced threat detection to help prevent issues before they happen. Whether the team is in office or working from home, security is the name of the game. The Intel vPro lets you remotely update, restore, and secure your business's PCs, even if they're outside the firewall. Plus, the integrated and validated platform helps ensure smooth PC fleet management and means you can maintain and scale PCs with confidence, helping you save the day, every day. Intel vPro, built for what IT heroes do, built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. We're back. Caitlin was just telling us about a fan who tried to start a conspiracy about her identity. So I wanted to dig more into Caitlin's personal experience of writing the book. There's a piece of the book that discusses uh, Channel 4 in the UK making a documentary about One Direction fans they get into this conspiracy theory and then decontextualizing it out of the internet and putting it onto the medium of television, like just made it feel absurd to everyone. 
it seems like you ran into the same problem in writing a book. You're decontextualizing a social phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It seems like when online community runs into real life in that way or runs into a non-native platform, like th- bad things tend to happen. How did you resolve that when you're like writing this book? Like there's all these people having these very intense social experiences, but they feel private because yeah. they're in their, they're in their home. They're like looking at a phone screen or whatever, which is a very private mode of operation, but it's mm-hmm. a social public experience, especially on, on Tumblr or Twitter or whatever. how do you resolve that tension? Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, it was really hard. I had like written about people who believed in the Larry conspiracy theory before, and they were already like kind of distrustful of me would be like the really mild way to put it. And were like of the opinion that I was sort of like this like grifter figure who was like coming through town and like picking up all these like juicy tidbits from, from their blogs and then like putting them on the market to like make money and like achieve acclaim for myself. And like, in some ways that's like not incorrect. So it was difficult to think about, like, I guess I tried to think about how much of the specifics from these people's blogs do I really need in order to explain what was going on without necessarily like taking things without permission. So I tried to minimize that as much as I could. Um, And also, like, I guess that was part of the reason why it was useful to write from the perspective of the One Direction fandom specifically instead of another fandom or instead of doing multiple fandoms because I actually, like, experienced those things myself and could rely a lot on, like, my own memories of being part of the fandom when it was splitting up over these conspiracy theories and disputes there was also like some people I spoke to in the book about their own experiences of it that I felt like were really helpful and that were like useful in explaining like why it even matters because it's not just like, Oh, how wild and crazy these like women are. They believe this thing that's obviously false and is like pretty twisted. If people like actually got hurt by those conspiracy theories, even within the fandom, like, you know, like young people who went there for some sense of community and then just like got wrapped up into like skewing misogynistic vitriol about some guy's girlfriend that they didn't know. And then later felt a lot of regret and shame about that, which, you know, at like 17 to have to look back (laughs) at your online behavior from when you were 14 and figure out like how you got led down that path is sort of a weighty psychological burden. And I think also for people of color in the fandom, that was a pretty painful time too, because Louis Tomlinson went through this phase of like doing kind of offensive or insensitive things, including like using like a British abbreviation of the N word and the like Larry believers were really intent on writing that off as something that management was forcing him to do as part of his like, you know, straight guy, public persona. Um, So, like, I think, like, that kind of, like, denial of reality also became hurtful for people, too. And so it, like, does, like, matter beyond the kind of, like, voyeuristic, like, they thought the baby was a doll, Um, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So I thought it was important. But, yeah, it it was hard to think about, like, I don't want to, like, cause more distress for people. You brought up those kind of negative impacts earlier. You mentioned Gamergate. It's sort of hard to talk about fan behavior, especially on Twitter, where it seems like that's the point of using Twitter. 
without talking about harassment campaigns or influence campaigns, some of them can get pretty nasty. People like music reviewers have gotten fired. That's an example in your book. You have a researcher in your book actually saying that Doxy and Gamergate are on the same continuum is fandom. Is that getting better? Is that self-moderating? Have people realized like this is a button we shouldn't push? I don't I don't know. I think like fandom's always kind of going to involve like the that whole spectrum of behaviors. I do want to emphasize that I think a lot of what fandom does is like pro-social and like funny and and interesting and exciting and artful and People were paying a lot of attention to the political possibilities of fandom during the summer of 2020 when they were really rallying around the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, using the skills that they'd learned in fandom to participate in that movement in a way that felt like natural to them and felt easy for them to execute. And they were already organized to drive social media conversation and also to kind of like flood. They were flooding police apps to, to shut them down and stuff. So that is an example of sort of the positive possibility of fandom, even while at the same time, it is a little bit uh, chilling to think of that as fandom sort of like evolving into this political force without necessarily always having a clear perspective. Because at the time, like K-pop was also getting involved with like anonymous hackers or people who were claiming to be anonymous hackers. It's kind of hard to tell the difference. And then later, even more recently, there was like an incident where Nicki Minaj fans were like promoting like vaccine hesitancy because of something that Nicki Minaj had said. And like Tucker Carlson kind of tried to seize on that and, you know, embrace the barbs. And that was interesting to watch because you could see like playing out in real time, like different fans within that fandom sort of bickering over like what the political meaning of the fandom should be. And some of them, you know, going along with with Nicki Minaj saying whatever weird thing she said about vaccines and others chiding Nicki Minaj for retweeting Tucker Carlson and saying like, he's a white supremacist. That's not what we want to represent. <laughs> so there's like, there's these constant, like, I don't know, like battles behind the scenes or deeper in the replies than most people look within the fandom sort of like trying to decide like what are we going to mean politically and sometimes what they decide on is really um like positive and progressive and other times it can be reactionary so i think part of what i wanted people to come away from the book with was like kind of a ambivalence about fandom rather than like dismissing it as a pathology or like something like stupid or even like malignant, embarrassing and gross. And also rather than thinking of it as something that's like raw, raw girl power, like fans are incredible. There's going to like Gen Z K-pop fans are going to save the world. Thinking about the full range of what's possible in fandom and the ways that it can really like help people in their lives. Um, and also the ways that it can kind of like take a dark turn. I don't know. It was hard to like strike that balance because I didn't want the book to be like, there are all these ways to practice fandom and <laughs> the way that the way that I do it is the good way and the way that these people do it is the bad way. But I do feel like there's like there's a lot of good and bad and it's like important to think about all of it. I'm going to ask one more question about the bad, then I'm going to turn to the good, I promise. Um, okay. Uh, You've got this line in the book that is the closest thing to articulating something that I've been struggling with. Here's the line. There's no such thing as the fan internet because fan internet is the internet. Fanning is the dominant mode of online speech, and the vitriol of defensive fans is the dominant mode of shouting people down on social platforms. 
when I say that's the closest thing to articulating something I've been struggling with is we are currently in this moment where it feels like the first amendment is up for grabs, right? Like various states are Mm -hmm. passing online moderation rules. And we talk about how free speech is dead on social platforms and we should rein in Twitter. And I don't know what Elon Musk is going to do, but it's like we're fish and being harassed by K-pop stands is the water (laughs) and no one can talk about like the invisible fabric that's tying all this together is like fan behavior on social platforms. Like if you say the wrong thing, and there's context collapse around your tweet, you might lose your job because the Bayhive is mad at you, right? Or if you're a political researcher and you piss off Elizabeth Warren fans, like your life is hell for a day. And it's like a very isolated experience. That's the thing we're all talking about when you talk about free speech, it feels like much more so than like individual Twitter moderation decisions is the sense that at any moment you could suffer context collapse and fall into like, a spiral of bad things happening to you. And it just seems like we don't have the language to talk about it except for fandom, which has been dealing with it for years now. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I guess I like fandom's relationship to cancel culture, as you might call it, is sort of murky. Um, I'm thinking about like whether you can actually be canceled by fans. I like, I don't know if that's really happened a lot I feel like I've been probably the closest I've been to canceled is like being canceled by like Glenn Greenwald fans so maybe it is true (laughs) um that's a badge of honor I think (laughs) do you think that's a useful language or a useful framework to think about it like I think the tenor of the conversation about speech on the internet is like off and the degree to which I think it is off is related to the degree that we cannot talk about or we don't have the language to talk about how big groups of people act online. And the closest mm-hmm. we have to that language is talking about fandoms, but we mm-hmm. haven't yet connected how we talk about fandoms to how we talk about speech writ large. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, like when, when you're talking about the free speech conversation, you mean like people insisting that they're being like over moderated by Twitter, but what they're really experiencing is like people getting mad at them for saying something they don't like. Yeah, I think there's that. But I also think if you look at why Twitter does some of that moderation stuff or any platform, right, it's to, you know, the the language they would use is to preserve the health of the platform and the health of conversations. Yeah. And so really what they're doing is they're moderating against the worst impulses of large crowds. Mm -hmm. And so that those moderation decisions get taken. But that's how you preserve a platform like Twitter, which is not a single 230 million person mass, but lots and lots of individual groups. And I, I feel like every platform suffers this in some way, right? You've got a big user base that is inherently splintered into multiple affinity groups and those affinity groups will like go and do things. And what the moderation decisions are usually about is less overtly racist speech and much more about, oh, there's harassment taking place. We're going to throttle it down, Mm -hmm. right? This subreddit has decided to do a raid on another subreddit. We're going to stop it. And, like, that is the bulk of the moderation work that the platforms do. Mm-hmm. And it, if you just, like, look at it very abstractly, it's sort of in reaction to the fandom has organized on Tumblr, and now they're going to do something on Twitter. The thing they do on Twitter, to your point, could be very positive. It could be very negative. It could be funny. It could be anything. But that thing that happens is the actual context of speech that we are talking about, whether it's political, whether it's just trying to get the album to trend And it just feels like fandom is the right framework to think about it in as opposed to 
I don't know, the tiresome arguments about Section 230 of the First Amendment that I end up having. Yeah, yeah. I feel like fans sometimes, like, brag about putting the platforms in that sort of, like, conundrum of having to moderate, like, overuse of the platform that, like, becomes antisocial, even when it is, like, you know, like, ostensibly what they want to have millions of young people, like, tweeting all day long. But, yeah. I mean, I could go. I could go the rest of my life without reading another tweet about Section Two Thirty. <laughs> Although I don't know if I would love to see like everyone in the free speech debate like start to talk about fandom. <laughs> I was just, yeah. It was. Just, I finished reading the book. Right, you're like it's. This is everything. This is the dominant. This is the other line. It's the backbone of the influencer economy. It's a dominant mode of commerce. Brand loyalty is rebranded as fandom. People should go read this book. It's very like I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book, but it just feels like if that's true then actually the the big tension here is people like you and other people have to go examine fandom in a much more serious way that will lead to even more of that feeling of violation of taking out of the natural context and potentially into an academic context. Or I'm just trying to imagine like the Harvard Business School course on fandom and brand loyalty. Like yeah. it's coming and that yeah. feels strange and dangerous and potentially exciting. Yeah. You would even, I feel like anybody who did that now would also be accused of like doxing. Have you, <laughs> I feel like that that's like one of the things I found strangest about social media in the last few years. Like even after I was done researching the book, I feel like I've noticed more of this, like people who are in those sort of insulated spaces, like, like discord servers feel that taking like anything out of those spaces and putting it somewhere else like constitutes doxing even if like their actual name's not attached to it and there's like no personal identifying information whatsoever it's like verboten now to like move things from one space to another online in order to examine it and you can get like I mean you probably get more like roasted than harassed but it's just like it's like a weird like attitudinal shift I think but if this is going to be the dominant mode of commerce, it will happen. Like once you attach this amount of commerce to it, like people are necessarily going to take it out of the spaces and study it and try to figure out how to manufacture it. Like we can sort of like end where we started. Like One Direction was manufactured to be this thing. Mm -hmm. The pathway by which they became it was not probably what Simon Cowell had in mind, but the end state was his goal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, fans did a great job for him. He now he gets to he gets to take credit for being like a genius, even though the One Direction 1.0 is like not much of an accomplishment. It's really like <laughs> it's really later days. Like I feel like 2013 third album time is peak One Direction, and that was when they were like maximally engaged with the fan base, doing like eight hour live streams and stuff, which is so insane to think about now. Like who would why would anybody do that? But yeah, it was a really, really, spe really special and sometimes disturbing time to be on the internet. Let me just ask the broad question at the end here. What do you think is kind of the next shift in fandom culture, right? Like we had this explosion, which is what you wrote about these bands. The thing is created. The social platforms take their cues from the dynamics of fans. In many cases, they build features to enable it. Then they build features to slow it down. We're at a very strange moment in that dynamic right now what do you think is next what's the next turn well i guess speaking of what i was just saying about people getting even more and more defensive about kind of guarding the boundaries of these like insular online spaces i feel like the next turn in fandom is to go down a dark path like a little bit culty like there's 
this pop star from Alabama who's just got her first New York Times story, Ethel Kane, who calls her fans like the daughters of Kane. And they have oh this very like religious way of talking about her, like as if she's sort of like passing down commandments. Like they congregate in like a discord channel like rather than on tumblr or like they aren't even super public on twitter and i i feel like there'll be more of that fandom will hunker down and start like policing its boundaries to avoid being capitalized on this in the same way that it has been in the past like not that we won't still have like enormous k-pop fandoms that are excited about being public and like want to be seen all the time but i think this like other form of sort of like underground fandom you know, sort of in the way that there would have been like IRL underground scenes, but like now just like sort of a like online version of that, that can be like really covert um, (laughs) and have like a, I don't know, sort of unsettling (laughs) quality about (laughs) it, um, I think is the next thing. All right. Well, Caitlin, this has been terrific. It's always so much fun to talk to you. I really recommend this book um, thoroughly. had a good time reading it, even though I was listening to One Direction, like almost for the first time while reading it. So when you were like praising and dunking on the songs, I was like, wait, I have to go listen <laughs> to it. Very fun. Thoroughly enjoyed it. You are not wrong that they have become like a classic rock band. What's your favorite One Direction song? Oh, I don't know. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. no. I'm horrible at remembering the names of songs. So that's like. That's okay. Um, it would not be good for me at this moment in time. But I will say this. The connection you make in the book between, oh, there's this group of people particularly young women who use the internet who actually shape how it works. And there's a group of people who do destructive thing, particularly young men. And we spend more time paying attention to the young men, than the young women is like strikingly true. And so hmm. I, I hope people read the book just to get that point out of it because it, it is unexamined how these things work. Even if the people don't seem particularly open to being examined. Yeah. I know. I feel like I've been like a little bit of a, I've been a little bit like doom and gloom <laughs> during this interview. But yeah, like part of the reason I wanted to write the book was because like I started my journalism career like during the rise of MAGA and like (laughs) alt-right or whatever. And there was like such an urgency at the time to like understand how these things happened. And people were just like, you know, like pretty frantic to dive into all of those subcultures. And like I was too myself. But then the dust kind of settled in like 2018, 2019. It's like, okay, now we we understand those freaks. Like, what about this like whole other side of culture that we like haven't really bothered to look at at all? That's great. Well, Caitlin, it's been great having you on. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Caitlin Tiffany for taking the time to be on Decoder today. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, give us that five-star review. And as many of you have noticed, if you tweet about Decoder, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton DeSimone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.